If you enjoy studying the Bible, but have grown frustrated looking for solid content you can trust, welcome to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study each day, five days a week. Every Monday, the team at Get Fed Today posts five hand-selected sermons from a vast catalog of reliable Bible teachers for you to enjoy on your commute, to and from work, during your daily walk or run, or that hour you spend working out. Please note, Get Fed Today only posts content that is already available for free on the internet. Nothing about this ministry is monetized, and a few costs associated with hosting the podcast have been covered by a single benefactor. In fact, Get Fed Today is a volunteer ministry run by a team of Christ followers who love God's Word, enjoy good Bible teaching, and genuinely want to make it as easy as possible for their fellow brothers and sisters to get fed today. All you have to do is subscribe. For quick links to the podcast available on Apple, Google, and Spotify, simply visit GetFedToday.com. And again, that's GetFedToday.com. Let's turn to Luke chapter 14. The Lord put this on my heart almost immediately upon praying for coming to the conference, this conference, and, and sometimes you don't know why, and you just be obedient. I'm not apologizing for the sermon ahead of time, by the way. That's a key rule. Never apologize for your sermon in the introduction. Luke chapter 14. You never know what the Lord's going to do. Verse 1. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him closely And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and he let him go. And then he answered them saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. So he told them a parable to those who were invited. When he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be, you be invited by him, and he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher, and then you'll have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for every revelation you give us of our Savior. And we ask that you would just put your finishing touches upon our heart in this conference, Lord, through this passage this morning. We're eager to continue to be conformed into the image of Christ. And we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in our lives this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
Jesus had been invited into the home of one of the rulers of the Pharisees for a meal, and it was an invitation that he accepted. And the inviter or the host, we're told, is a Pharisee, and he was more than a Pharisee. We're told that he was one of the rulers of the Pharisees, so perhaps a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And if he was a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, that made him one of the most, uh, one of 70 of the most powerful men, religious men in all of Israel concerning Judaism, but not only in Israel, but the entire world. And we'll see in just a moment that this invitation was given out of, uh, not given out of a motive of really extending sincere hospitality toward Jesus. But Jesus, and there's always something to be learned about him and everything that he does that he doesn't do in a particular scene, what he says, what he doesn't say. Despite all of the uh, drama that's uh, surrounding this particular invitation, he very graciously accepts the invitation. And Jesus and the ruler of the Pharisees, they're not alone at this meal. We're told that there's a larger group present in verse 1, and they are introduced to us by the word they. And we're told that they were watching Jesus very, very closely. So we know this isn't a casual lunch that's going on. There's something much bigger that's happening on this scene than just an invitation to lunch and eating this meal. And what they were watching was that there was a man who was afflicted with something called dropsy that was in the midst of this group of men who were invited to this meal. Now, dropsy was a physical condition that caused the body to begin to swell because of excess fluid within the body. It, was, it wasn't really caused by dropsy. It always had a deeper uh, cause within the body. It was simply a symptom of a larger problem, usually a problem with the heart or the kidneys or with the liver. And to have dropsy meant that this man had some disease that was fairly advanced, and this was a painful disease to have. And so this is a little bit about the condition of the man that they have brought into this uh, luncheon. And very importantly, we told, we're told that all of this occurred on the Sabbath day. And the specific reason that they were watching Jesus closely was to see whether he would heal this man of his dropsy on the Sabbath day, which would not have been a violation of the law of Moses, but it would have been a violation of their interpretation of the law of Moses, which was wrong, as we'll see in just a moment as as well. In all likelihood, uh, the whole entire scene is a setup. It's an attempt by the Jewish religious leaders to try and find a cause for accusation against Jesus. And the reason that we can conclude that is, number one, that this kind of man would never have been, in and of himself, invited to a feast that involved these religious leaders. To the Jewish religious leaders of the Pharisees at that particular time, 
for someone to be afflicted with something like dropsy, they considered that to be a curse from God, a reflection of a man's relationship with God or lack of relationship with God. And so if a person was in this kind of a condition, it meant that he was out of favor with God. If he was out of favor with God, then why in the world would we invite him to a feast among religious leaders? So that's how they viewed him. So this isn't just about a, an ordinary lunch. This is something bigger that they're trying to get to Jesus uh, related to. The fact that also the fact that they were watching Jesus tells us that this isn't a normal meal. The Greek word that's used for watch there in the passage, it carries the idea of watching secretly. They're trying to be discreet. It's very tough to be discreet uh, in attempting to fool Jesus. The Bible says that God uh, knows our thoughts uh, when they're still afar off. It's a tremendous advantage that God has in dealing with us. So they're trying to... It's like a two-year-old trying to be sneaky with a 50-year-old. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But they're watching him very closely in the way that like an uh, undercover agent would be watching some kind of a, of a scene. So the mood of the whole thing is not very friendly at all. And we're told also in verse 3 that uh, when Jesus broke the silence and he spoke, spoke to them ultimately that his speaking to them took the form of an answer. So he recognized that this isn't a mere lunch invitation that I've received. Uh, They are asking me something. They are putting me to a test of some kind. And so he answered what he recognized to be the question, uh, the theological question that they were trying to uh, trap him in, that they were posing to him. Now, these religious leaders knew something very, very interesting about Jesus and something that marked Jesus' life so unfailingly, it was a characteristic of his life, that they decided to use this characteristic of his life in an attempt to trap him. And what they knew about Jesus, they had also seen uh, perhaps some of them in the synagogue, his healing of the man with the withered hand in that synagogue in Capernaum. And they knew that when Jesus walked into a room, his attention was immediately drawn to the person with the greatest need. That's what he did. When he walked into any environment, he wasn't concerned about the highest seat or this or that or anything else that's going on. When he walked into a room, his eye went to the person with the greatest need. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing to understand about God wanting to develop Christ-likeness in our life as, as well. But that was just the way that he was. They knew no matter how big this crowd was, we just got to put one man with a dropsy or one man with a withered hand in here, and we don't even have to worry that Jesus is going to overlook him. Everybody, all of the other religious leaders in the room, they would have overlooked him, gone on about the whole scene that they were in the middle of. But they knew this to be true unfailingly uh, about the Lord. And so they watched him closely. I think, what a, again, what a beautiful, wonderful thing to be known for, to be known as a person who, upon entering a room, looks for the person with the greatest need and then makes a beeline toward that person. 
Well, Jesus proceeds to take their test in verses 3 through 6. And Jesus, his answer in verse 3 to this unasked question that it hasn't been verbalized, but it's a very obvious question. And uh, Jesus responds to the question. Jesus doesn't deal in deceit. So he openly posed the question to them that he knew that they were posing to him and that they were all thinking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And so he asked them that question. Their response, we're told, and verse 4 was silence. And so here is their silence. He asked them the question. They have no response to the, to the question that he's asked which tells us that they don't have a solid biblical basis for uh, the position that they're holding. And otherwise, they would have just happily thrown chapter and verse in Jesus' face at this particular point. But they don't have a biblical base for their interpretation and for uh, you know, what they had established as a tradition. Jesus, and it's, it's, I'll tell you, it's... In a Bible that's filled with tender scenes of Jesus uh, in his interaction with people, this is uh, one right there near the top. He proceeded, we're told, in verse 4 to heal the man, and then very significantly, he let him go. It was almost like, let's get you out of this room. You don't need the aggravation. You don't need to be in the middle of this And they come in, they cruelly use you as a prop in this whole scene. And so let's get you healed and let's get you out of here. You don't need to be exposed to any of this. And in healing the man and letting him go, Jesus answered their question. And the answer, heaven's answer to their question was, yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath day. And it wasn't just Jesus' answer to this crowd, but it was the Father's answer to the crowd because Jesus said, I only do those things that the Father tells me to do. And, after the, he, and, and so he allows this man to leave the scene. And then in verse 5, Jesus posed a question to them. And... Uh, and Ask them there, which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Now, to pull a donkey or an ox out of a pit on the Sabbath day, that would require a considerable amount of effort. I'm speaking of this uh, theoretically for me. I've never pulled a donkey or an ox out of a pit. I can barely get myself out of a pit these days. So it would have been considerable exertion to accomplish something uh, like that, and certainly more than should have been exerted on on the Sabbath, the the day of rest. But Jesus is saying that in this extraordinary circumstance, he knew what they all knew, and that is the Pharisees, they would have rescued their valuable animal. Jesus knew they would have. They knew that they would. And the point that Jesus was making was that in their interpretation of the law, they had found a way to show mercy to their animals. But somehow God isn't free to then do the same for man who he has created in his own image. And 
the capacity that we have as even as leaders, religious leaders. I mean, I'm the same descendant of Adam and Eve as all of these men that are in that room. I'm capable of all of anything they did and more, being in the wrong place at the wrong time and on the wrong side of the Lord. But there's something wrong with an interpretation of God's word that results in treating animals better than people. And yet, that's what they had done to God's law. Their response to Jesus' question, again, was silence. They're having a little trouble in this conversation. And they realize they are being checkmated here. And they have this uncomfortable feeling that what they had set up is a trap for Jesus, but he's turning around on them completely. And they knew they had nothing they could say in the face of Jesus' sanctified logic here. And so we can be very, very sure that they weren't having a very uh, good time at this point uh, in all. Now, the lesson of this exchange that Jesus has with them is this. When in doubt about what to do in a situation, when in doubt about what God's word says related to a particular situation or how it applies, always go with grace and mercy over legalism and harshness. And if we live our life according to the motto, when in doubt, grace, then we will always find ourselves more in line with the heart of God especially if we have a natural tendency towards uh, legalism. Uh, Elsewhere, Jesus rebuked the tendency toward legalism and the interpreting of the scriptures without taking the heart of God into account in the interpretation, Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. But Jesus said to the religious leaders, but if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And he's quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, to a group of Pharisees. Well, what's the point? It answers the question of how can we interpret and apply God's word in a way that is consistent with God's heart so that we do not condemn the guiltless. And we do so by remembering mercy. And God's mercy should always guide any interpretation that we make related to God's word. should always be the thing that guides us in that. In Jesus, uh, Jesus, their mindset was that if you want to improve on the law of God, if you want to properly interpret the law of God, if you want to properly apply the law of God, make it harder than the scriptures actually declare, more burdensome, more miserable, and so err on that particular side uh, of, of things. And Jesus tells them that the exact opposite uh, is true, 
he said concerning the religious leaders, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And Jesus said the exact opposite should characterize our lives, we should, we, uh, that we will never properly interpret or apply God's laws without realizing that he desires mercy over sacrifice, that his commandments are given to make life better for people, not to make life unnecessarily harder. And they had completely missed the merciful heart of God. We really must resist this temptation of thinking that we are helping God out by imposing our own personal convictions or standards upon others. And clearly Jesus doesn't need the help, God doesn't need the help, and they don't appreciate the help. So in summary related to this part of the account, in order to properly interpret God's word and then to properly apply it to our own lives and the lives of others, remember mercy, when in doubt, err on the side of grace, and whatever we do, don't read more sacrifice or more hardship into God's commandments and then assume that it pleases God. It doesn't please God. And that's the best way to interpret and to apply the scriptures. And that is how to stay in, heart, in touch with the heart of God. And that's how not to condemn the guiltless. I don't want to be guilty of condemning the guiltless. Now, in this vein, I uh, live a very simple life as a pastor of Calvary Chapel of Modesto. Almost my entire focus is placed upon how to make that little church the most biblical church and family that it can be in the light of the revelation of God's word. So I'm not out trying to fix uh, the rest of the world necessarily, and I'm not even out trying to fix everything that's wrong in professing Christianity. And because uh, that, and I, I actually I don't want to know everything that's going on in professing Christianity. It's, sometimes it's just too discouraging. I had a place in my ministry many years ago in my service to the Lord, and I just. People were sending me these newsletters of everything that's wrong, everything this and all of that, and I realized I'm not going to make it unless I keep my focus on people that are doing it right and the good things in the body of Christ and all of these powerful, quiet things that God people are doing. And so I'm very careful about how much of that stuff I allow into my life. God knows how to take care of those things. I don't have control over them. And I do know that there are things, there's craziness and wackiness and there is downright uh, false doctrine and heresy. Those things have to be stood against and that's, that's real and that's, um, that has to be done and that's a part of what we're, we are called to do. But recently, I guess they have this thing called discernment ministries. I never knew somebody gave a title of it for me. Uh, on things and I'll tell you some of it is as it's come my way here and there in the last couple years and and 
in the last few months, and some of it, you notice I say some of it, I don't say all of it, I say some of it. Sometimes pastors are the worst listeners in the whole world. But it looks like a witch hunt to me, and I don't like it. And it breaks my heart. And I think to myself, can't people make a mistake anymore without being the headline of a blog? Has it become that graceless, that lacking in mercy? Can a pastor make a big mistake just between him and God? And God take him into the woodshed and get that all straightened out like he's done with me so many times. And to help me to remember never to do that again without somebody reading more into it than the fact we're going to make mistakes in this calling. And we have to be careful this doesn't become graceless. And it doesn't become merciless. And, and we move far from the heart of God and we begin to condemn the guiltless. And we can put ourselves in a place where God will be forced to judge us. Nobody wants to serve the Lord in an environment where there is no grace and mercy and room to make mistake and then Grace to try it again. A sure way to kill a church or kill anything is to introduce that kind of an environment because how much grace has God extended to you? I mean, we are such debtors to his grace and then to model that to our flock but to one another in this movement and to the body of Christ beyond that. And so it's a valuable lesson here on the issue of mercy and of grace as opposed to harshness and opposed to legalism, man-made legalism and suspicion. Jesus then, in verses 7 through 11, spoke a parable to these assembled guests. And who he spoke this to there in verse 7 were the other guests who had been invited with him to this particular uh, meal. They were without a doubt, probably all religious leaders and lawyers and Pharisees. And the issue the parable addressed is there in verse 7. Upon entering the house, Jesus noted how each of the others who had been invited, they chose to take the best seats to sit upon entering into the room. And so the best seats were those seats closest to whoever was considered to be the most important person in the room. And it was typically the host of the feast. And so the best seats were those that were closest to the host of the feast. And conversely, the lowest seats were those that were the farthest away from the host table. And as people walked in, they had automatically, as Jesus witnessed, they automatically made their way to the most prominent seat available, seeking the seats with the greatest honor. And they did so so automatically without asking themselves or giving a second thought 
as to whether they warranted such a place in the eyes of the host. They seated themselves based upon their own sense of self-importance. So there's just this flagrant display of pride and selfish ambition and self-promotion. And you notice Jesus' correction of this selfish ambition and this self-promotion of verses 8 through 11. And he tells us that when invited to a wedding feast, he said, don't sit in the best place. Don't self-assign yourself uh, the best seat. And the reason, he tells us, is lest we force the host of the feast to publicly humble us by asking us to give us up our seat for somebody else who's more important. So there you are, you're seated, you can feel it. I feel the emotion of the whole scene. And you're seated there at the feast, and then a close friend of the host arrived after the seats were all taken. The host makes it his business to find a a close friend of his, a seat that's closer to his table. He sees where you have seated yourself, and he wonders what in the world could have possessed you to ever think you were so important as to put yourself in that seat. So he makes himself way over to your table, stands over you, and with every eye in the room on the host, he asks you to give way for his friend, and now you have to publicly walk from the front uh, to the lowest or the last seat in the room. You just imagine the embarrassment of that. I can feel it. <laughs> it's a long, embarrassing uh, walk, isn't it? And when we make decisions based upon self-promotion and a sense of self-importance or selfish ambition, we always run the risk of a humiliation and almost always a public humiliation because we are public people. We are leaders. It's always better to be humble than to be humbled, (laughs) Now notice in verse 10, Jesus, instead he instructed them and us that when we enter into a room to just go sit at the lowest place. So he says, when you go into a room, sit at the lowest place. And the reason, he says, is because you can't go down from there. You can only go up. Now there's enormous peace in that. You're going to enjoy your meal much more than the person who has promoted himself beyond where he ought to, because he's going to all, he, that meal is going to sit like this right there in his stomach, because he's going to wonder, am I going to get moved from this seat? When you take the lowest seat, you you just can't go any lower. You get to enjoy the meal with absolute peace. I can't go any lower than the seat I have assigned myself to. So it may not be the best seat, but I'll tell you, that's where peace is found. And that's where peace is found in ministry as well. There's a peace in taking the lowest place. And the life of the humble person, it's a peaceful life. There's no unnecessary drama. It's a low-maintenance life. There isn't anything to live up to. And then you leave it in the hands of the master of the feast to promote you wherever he wants to promote you. 
And then again, all of the eyes are on the host again. But this time he comes to your table, the furthest in the lowest place in the room. And he asks you in front of everyone, what in the world are you doing sitting down here in this particular seat? And he calls you to take the higher seat. And the result will be honor rather than humiliation. Well, that's a much more pleasurable experience, isn't it? The Bible teaches that as God's children, we can always take the lowest seat in life without the slightest risk of being overlooked by God for promotion. There are a few, one of the things, advantages of getting a little bit older, they're all spiritual, by the way, (laughs) is you do get to see a lot of things and experience a lot of things uh, over time. And you come to appreciate and you come to have a confidence in the providence of God, the sovereignty of God in every situation, that he rules over all things and he will overrule all things for his purposes. No one will ever be overlooked by taking the lowest seat in, at the banquet or in ministry, or in life. Psalm 75, Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge who puts down one, and he exalts another. We never have to worry that we're going to be overlooked by taking the lowest place. God will take care of us. And so when we have a choice of two seats Always take the lower seat. That way, when we are promoted, we can know that God did the promoting. And the principle, verse 11, it's also a promise. And Jesus declares that it's true for every child of God. God will humble the proud. Always take the lowest seat, the lowest position. Otherwise, I set myself up to be publicly humbled by God. And God must do it because if I self-exalt myself or self-promote myself into a position God hasn't prepared for me, then he has to remove me from that position in order to put in his prepared man to put in that place. And it is inevitable This is absolutely true. God will always humble the proud. But then he equally true is he will always exalt the humble. Humility allows a God to bless us and to promote us in a way that he desires. It's very important to realize that this parable that Jesus spoke here, he spoke it to religious leaders. The context is religious leaders, self-promotion in the context of those that claim to represent God or want to be representatives of God. We're all susceptible to these things. And I just want to close with just three little applicational points related to this, this particular passage that we've looked at. When in doubt concerning how to safely interpret a passage of Scripture or how to safely apply a passage of Scripture to someone's life or situation in a way that's consistent with the heart of God so that we do not condemn 
the guiltless, remember mercy. When in doubt, always go on the side of grace. Don't read more sacrifice or hardship into God's commandments and assume that we're helping God. There is a legalist in each of us. Some of us, it's like in the 90 percentile, and it takes all of God's grace to keep us out of that place. And it's important for us to hear these things. We don't help God by doing that. Number two, always take the lowest seat, the lowest position. And pride is often a very difficult thing to recognize in our life. We all know the old saying that the first thing that pride does in our life is it incapacitates our ability to recognize it. We're too proud to recognize that we're pride, proud. And so that starts a whole sequence of events that's going to end up in typically a, pub, a public humbling. And so the importance of us being, by the Spirit of God, self-monitoring in this place and to look and to say, I am going to take the lowest place and I will be happy there and I won't even consider myself uh, uh, having done something significant by taking the lower place. And so the importance of taking that, that lower place, it's a great test for our pride and keeps us aware of the pride that's in us and and that can disqualify us. And then number three, and finally, in order to be a shepherd like Jesus, when we enter into a room, we shouldn't look for the highest seat, but look for the person with the greatest need and then focus our attention there. People in our churches are desperately in need of that kind of attention that Jesus wants to give to them, and he wants to do it through us. If we're always looking for the highest seat, we will never, ever notice the person with the greatest need in the room. We will overlook them all of our ministry lives. And we will then miss the opportunity to minister to them. And thus, we will miss the life of Christ, which is the single greatest casualty of selfish ambition and self-promotion in our lives. I'd like to read a passage of Scripture to you. And if you don't think that it's too weird... I'd like to just have you close your eyes, which is very dangerous on the last session, (laughs) being up so late and all, but they've got the air cranked up pretty good. Um, You'd shiver if you fell asleep. But just to close your eyes, and let me just read this passage to you, and let it just impact our spirits, and let it just cut away anything that needs to be cut away And let it just build in and affirm anything that needs to be built in and affirmed. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, 
If any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our model in life and in ministry. Let's pray together. Lord, this calling can get very complicated and very distracted and very goofy. And the craziness of this world and even some of the craziness and professing Christianity. And we pray and we ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would keep Jesus as the example in every part of our life and of our ministry. We ask that you continue to conform us into his beautiful image. And we ask it in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Damian Kyle. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Damian's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.